Welcome everyone to the Andwise Community Hour. This is our second session. Did our first session a couple of weeks ago. And we're really lucky to have our Chief Education Officer, our CFP, Tanya Frias with us, who's mm -hmm. decades of experience. And then I'll talk from the physician perspective and my limited experience since finishing residency in 2012. Last community hour, we covered a bunch of wide ranging topics, but predominantly focused on making your written financial plan. There's a lot of interplay between things. We thought this week it would be nice to talk about working with a financial advisor and the expectations and best practices and some of the pricing models. I'll let Tanya take it away. I had a couple calls with some of the members and these calls seem to be very focused on the financial planner relationship and what to expect from it. We talked about the different ways that financial planners charge to deliver their services. I thought today would be a, a good time to go over what that relationship looks like, set expectations from a client and from a planner's perspective. That way the relationship can be full of value for both ends, especially for people in your unique situation. What questions do you have for me? One of the things we touched upon last week was when you're first meeting with an advisor, the types of information that you have to provide to them. Can we just do a quick recap? What would you want from the client for it to be a productive first meeting or maybe after the introductory call, the second call that you have when they're about to assess whether you're a good fit mm -hmm. to work together on your end, financial planner, you're also thinking about whether you can help these people, these yeah. physicians, residents, wherever they are. What kind of stuff do you need well, from us? There's two types of information that's needed. Obviously, the quantitative information, being pretty open about your assets, income, your liabilities, all of your cash flow, money in, money out information on your existing bank and investment accounts, any insurance information that you may have, whether it be personally or through your employer, any estate planning documents, any wills or trusts or, or health proxies, proxies that you have in place. Depending on how thorough the planner is, they may ask for your tax returns as well. Information on all of your loans, whether it be student loans, mortgages, credit cards. So all of these things so they can get a full picture of your financial situation. It's a lot and it can be overwhelming. And sometimes clients don't have all the information readily available for that first or second intake meeting. It may take some time to get the information over. One thing to look out for is to ensure that the planner has a safe way for you to deliver that information. There are a lot of platforms, financial planning platforms. One is Right Capital, eMoney. Planners use these platforms to do the analysis for a financial plan, and they all have secure portals for you to um, submit documents. They may have other ways for you to like the box and things like that for you to submit them securely. That's just the numbers. The really important information is what you're trying to accomplish and why. There is a level of vulnerability that you may experience when you're talking to your planner. Being as honest as possible will be beneficial to both you and the planner. If you feel like you haven't done what you think you should have been doing, 
a lot of clients in the past have had all kinds of feelings about the things that they haven't done. So I've spent a lot of time making sure that they understood that it's okay. Planners meet you where you're at. And if you get the feeling of judgment or that the planner is not being open and making you feel comfortable, then maybe it's not the right planner for you because financial planning is pretty personal. It's not just about money. Money is just numbers at the end of the day. They add value when you attach goals to them and when they get you to a certain destination or to a certain goal. Very important that you do have a comfort level with your planner and are comfortable discussing your finances, divulging information. I have in the past worked with people or started to work with um, clients who didn't want to give me all of the information, which is okay. They didn't trust me yet, but then it meant that I couldn't give them good information. I couldn't give them good outcomes. I couldn't do good analysis because I didn't have all the information. If you feel that you cannot do those things, then maybe either you're not ready to enter that sort of a relationship or that's just not the right planner for you. So it's obviously submitting a lot of information, personal financial information, and also divulging personal feelings and goals around your finances. You will have those conversations as well. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point and very underestimated that people that don't share the whole picture, they're not going to get the right financial plan back. And it's interesting. You just said that because I was just talking to an older relative that recently who was with a big retirement company that has like advisory services and pretty reasonable fee, 0.3% assets under management. But they, they had gotten so hung up on the fee, getting the best deal for their fee that the, I feel like the financial plan that ended up getting made was horrible. And the last four years of the performance has been really bad. And it's a fault of both parties. One, that advisory services firm, one, they've had like turnover. I think this person's been with that firm for four years and their financial planners changed three times because of, because they're employed planners that work on the non-brokerage side. Um, but then on the actual individual side, they withheld some very important information or I don't know if it was lost in translation or, but they didn't take into account a large sum of money they had sitting in checking accounts doing nothing. We're talking like seven figure sum for someone in their seventies. And so this financial yeah, planner or advisor. Someone, I'm sorry. I think sometimes people think financial planner is just investment and there are mm-hmm. ads happened before in the past where they don't include the money that they have in their bank account. No, that's the money I have in my bank account. It doesn't need to be included. All of it needs yeah. to be included in your yeah. financial plan. Yeah. And to cut a long story short, for someone in their 70s that's still earning a good W-2 income above 200, their advisor had put them in a really bond-heavy portfolio that got absolutely obliterated mm. in the past 12 months while the S&P 500 is up 30%. Even high yield checking accounts these days are paying four or 5%. This person only made 2% on their money, which is just atrocious because the financial planner was only looking at their IRA and their Roth IRA. They, they weren't even accounting for this giant sum 
or the fact that the person was still earning active income. If you're not presenting all the data to the person, they're going to make the assumptions and they're going to be incorrect about. Also, the, the other thing I learned talking to this family member was the, the risk tolerance conversation, I feel like didn't really happen properly. And yep. I, I don't know what a good there was an way to tease that me. out of people. It's yeah. So people that happens a lot. Clients will sit there, or walk in there and say, I don't want to lose any money. I don't want to lose any money. I don't want to take any risk and not understanding what that means. And the planner maybe not doing a good job of explaining to them how investments work and why you would need maybe a different allocation based on their needs. Sometimes the communication is off and there are very conservative planners out there that if you say, I don't want to lose any money and I want the most conservative portfolio ever, they'll give you just that, whether or not it's in your best interest. Um, because at the end of the day, you have to agree to whatever they put you in. They won't go forward with an investment portfolio that you have not approved. In the past, when I've met with clients that have started with the conversation saying that they are super conservative, they don't want to lose any money, I explained to them how the market works and that you, the market needs time more than anything. What I would usually do is just ease them into more appropriate portfolios. Maybe you don't start 100% invested in the portfolio that would get you where you need to go. It might take some time to get folks to that optimized portfolio just because maybe they've never done it before. The worst thing you can do to your portfolio is sell out of fear. That does not help you. That's the biggest reason why people don't do well in their investments is because they sell at inappropriate times and it's usually driven by emotion. To prevent that, what I would do in the past was just do it over time just to get them used to market movement. So that way I'd have a higher likelihood of they staying, them staying invested in the long term. You've now shared important quantitative information. You established some sort of risk tolerance by mutually talking about it. And hopefully you decide to move forward with this person or company. In your experience working for different organizations, what are some of the pricing models that people may encounter? I think for people that have never worked with a financial advisor, they don't realize like how different it is out there for different people, different professionals getting paid. You're saying the word financial advisor, a financial advisor could be anywhere. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a financial planner. They have to be very clear about the services that they actually offer. There are people who hold themselves as financial advisors and they focus mostly on investments. They're not going to go through a full financial plan. The focus of the question, I've worked at bank platforms, broker dealers, RIAs, and insurance focused firms. If you go to someone that works at like a Maryland, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, they have set of products that they can work with you with when it comes to your investments. To some extent, they can do some planning, probably not to the extent that an individual financial planner at an RIA, which just means registered investment advisory firms, those are usually independent firms. They're not attached to big organizations like JP Morgan or any banks. They have a lot more latitude when it comes to doing planning, and they also have a lot more latitude when it comes to fees. One of these big firms, they have minimum. There's a minimum you can charge a client. 
those folks can charge you assets under management fee. This is probably the fee you're going to encounter the most, which means that they charge you a percentage of the assets that are invested. For example, if you have a million dollars invested with this advisor, if they're charging 1%, that's going to be $10,000 a year. And you don't pay that in terms of writing a check or running your card, it comes out of your investment portfolio, usually on a quarterly basis. So to be 1% divided by four, and you'll see that fee coming out of your account. And that's how most big firms charge fees. The other fee that you may encounter is a commission fee. If you actually have a trading account, if you're buying and selling individual securities or bonds, that is a commission type fee. It's usually very expensive now because you can trade for free on a whole bunch of platforms. Most of these firms don't want clients who trade, so they make it a bit punitive for you to open a trading account and work with an advisor to actually execute these trades for you. They'll probably recommend that you go to Charles Schwab or something or Fidelity and place those trades because the, the way the fee models are set up, these AUM fees, which are annuitized, meaning that this fee is going to hit every single year until you close your account. That's steady income. Firms like that income, that'll be the pricing model that you'll probably encounter the most. If you go and work with a planner or an advisor that's talking about insurance, whether it be life insurance, disability insurance, or annuities, there are commissions paid to the advisor for those products, but you don't pay them outright. Usually the insurance company that pays the advisor or planner. But what you would see is that you're essentially locked into these type of accounts for a certain amount of years because the insurance company has just paid this advisor money up front to, to, for you to um, implement this product. And they'd like to recoup that money that they paid. And that's usually why there's a surrender schedule when it comes to annuities or even an insurance policy in some cases. If you work with someone that has their own RIA, which is, again, the Registered Investment Advisory Firm, they have a lot of different ways that they can charge you. But yes, they can have the AUM model, but the model you might see the most is flat fee for the plan itself. And this fee could range anywhere from $3,000, is probably the cheapest I've ever seen, all the way up to $20,000 depending on the com complexity of your plan and your needs. Now, if you pay that, that does not include your investment. If they have an AUN model for your investments, you would not only be paying that fee for the plan, you'd also be paying a percentage um, for them to invest your assets. Now, this AUN fee could be anywhere from the lowest, Dr. Verma just mentioned, was like 0.30%. That's pretty low all the way up to 2%, more than 2%. I don't even know how people get away with charging 2%. That's really rare. Years ago, that was normal, but that is not normal today. Anything over 2% is probably too high. And this AUN fee, it just covers the annual fee for you to have the account, right? Inside of these accounts, let's say you have ETFs in there, exchange traded funds, or you have mutual funds in there, those investment vehicles have their own fees internally. 
that could be anywhere from 0.01% to another one and a half, two percent Knowing all the fees that you're being charged is super important because it does affect performance. Most RIAs will put portfolios together that minimize the internal fees because obviously they're very aware of fees and don't want you to be charged exorbitant amounts of money. Don't want your performance to be affected, but knowing what the fees inside of the fund themselves is super important. There's the flat fee, but what happens with a flat fee is that's it. You're going to pay this flat fee for a plan and you may get a set of services attached to that, but they're probably going to be quite limited. And if you want to continue with this planner um, for the following year, they probably have additional fees for you to work with them in the future. It may not be that same big fee, but it would be a fee that's similar to having an attorney on retainer. That's the way I like to think of those fees. Some planners will charge per hour. Now, if they're charging you per hour, you're going to be thinking about every hour that this person is spending with you because that fee is about to get higher and higher. I usually don't recommend that you work with a planner per hour unless you have a really specific need and you know it's going to be limited and you feel like you don't need a full plan because that fee will start to add up quite quickly. Another model that I've been seeing recently, which I like, is a subscription model. So instead of paying a big fee up front, you may be charged monthly. The reason why I like that fee is because you're invested longer with the subscription fee as from a client's perspective and a planner's perspective. If you know you're paying for something on a monthly basis, it, it persuades you to be more interactive with your planner and to reach out to them when you have a question. And also the, the planner is incentivized to work with you and to answer those questions going forward. When you have a flat fee situation, you already paid them. They delivered the plan. There's not much incentive to continue to help you without you paying again. AUM fees are a percentage which you pay every, for every year that you have this portfolio invested. If the advisor is also a planner, they may charge you a, a fee for the financial plan delivery because that's a different set of work that they'd have to do. If there is insurance, any type of insurance being implemented, that person is being compensated by the insurance company on a commission basis. And then they may be subscription models, which work well for folks with less assets. Then there's the hourly fee. This all may seem really confusing because there's a lot of options, but I do want to open it up that if anyone has any questions about these fees or if they're presented with the proposal from a planner, I could certainly explain it to you. But what you want is to have a relationship where the planner is incentivized to help you and to be available to you. And you, in turn, are invested in this relationship as well and, and do reach out to them, especially if you're paid. Just for the compound interest, it's you, you don't realize how even the 1% assets under management fee really adds up over the long term. And you're right, since they don't send you statements, I, I hope my math's correct, but I just plug this in tell you compound interest calculator here, since the 401k contribution limits, like 22,500 for most, we're, we're talking about early career physicians. If you start with mm -hmm. zero and add 8,000, sorry, uh, 1,850 each month so that you get to the 22,500 each year, 
And then I'm just assuming a 30-year career. One, I put interest rate instead of the fee. But it's funny. Yes, this isn't accounting for any of the gains that you're going to have because I'm just trying to see what the approximate fee is. But it's funny, like you've contributed 666000 over 30 years by putting in 22500 each year. And the future value 1% up is like 100 grand more. So I, I don't know if I did the math wrong, but that seems like a 1% AUM over 30 years as you keep contributing money, it like comes to $100,000. I don't, I've seen like pretty big figures, but I've never plugged it into a calculator before. I don't know. I think so. That, that, yeah, it, it, the math is right. The projection is wrong. So that's a linear yeah. going up in one direction. The investments don't work that way. The thing about that percentage, yeah. some people like it because they feel like the advisor is benefiting for the account doing well. Obviously, the account grows from a dollar's perspective. They get paid more. The thing is that if the planner is not doing anything other than implementing this portfolio for you, then what are you paying for? That's the thing. The fee itself is not a huge problem. The problem is, are you actually getting value from this relationship and this planner for this fee? If you feel like you're not, then the fee is not justifiable. But if this person is really helping you, answers all your questions, gives you the right action so that you can implement the plan, helps you stay invested, which is probably the biggest job any planner or advisor has, if you feel like they're actually giving you value, then you're not going to care too much about the fee. But if you're paying fees and other than the first time you met this person and they put the portfolio together and you never have a conversation with them ever again, then you're going to be like, but what am I paying for? In those cases, yeah, it's going to be a problem. Planners and advisors have to make a living. This is why I like flat fee planners because you know exactly what you're getting for the subscription plan because I tend to like relationships where you are paying for the advice. The investment, you could invest on your own. That's reality. The way I see the value in a planner and client relationship is the advice. And is this person helping you through these life events? And can you trust this person and reach out to them when you need help when it comes to your finances and all the different decisions that you have to make in terms of your financial life? I took some notes based on last time's conversation at a comprehensive financial plan. I said the wrong term before financial advisor. When we were talking about comprehensive financial planning, part of that is going to be a lot of these things, right? Uh, the EPF student mm -hmm. loans, they go over with student loan payment optimizing strategy with you. The spending plan that's almost like budgeting and or cash flow management, mm -hmm. then investing retirement, what we were talking about with 401ks, IRAs, and then if you have any money left over, which depending on your life circumstance, it's hard to reach what the textbooks talk about a lot of times, like the 20% gross. A lot of people, I feel like that are physicians with high student debt, starting young families, trying to buy a house. Not that you have to do any of that. Those people that do choose to do that struggle to to create brokerage accounts until many years into practice. But the one thing I forgot about our conversation a few weeks ago, does a comprehensive financial plan also include asset protection or no? Is that something that you have to talk to? There's a lot of interest from the physician community about rental properties right now. I feel like a lot of the old school people that own rental properties, like parents and grandparents, they might just have checks coming in their own name. 
Now I see some younger physicians are all opening LLCs to try to create some sort of protected veil between themselves and the rental property. Is there well, anything I missed on that screen also? Yeah, it's actually a lot more than that. Think about it when you're about to get married, I, I knew you it. have children, divorce, adoption, long-term care for your parents. A lot of us are in sandwich generations where we are taking care of kids and parents as well. Think about all the financial decisions you've made in your life since you finished medical school. Imagine if you had someone to bounce those ideas off of and help you make the right decisions when it comes to your finances. It's tons. It's also when you switch jobs. It's also when you have open enrollment, if you're a W-2 employee and you have benefits. When you take on a business and structuring that business the right way, if you have employees, it's a lot. It's an exhaustive list, but if it has anything to do with you deciding to do or not do something, if, if you're making this decision because you want to build wealth or you want to protect yourself, it's probably a conversation you want to have with your planner. I think sometimes people don't know when to reach out to their planner. They think if I have some extra money to invest, I'll talk to this person. It's not just that. It's also the decisions that you make that don't have to do with you cutting a check. It's all of the life investment decisions. When your kids go off to college, what is the best way to cover those, their tuition and their expenses? I've had that conversation many times. It seems like parents really these days want to pay for their kids to go to school full boat. They will borrow for it. They will take money out of their retirement accounts for it. Having the pros and cons conversation of where this money is come from, coming from is super important. There's tons of reasons why you would talk to your planner and it would include all these things. Now, if you're doing something like an estate plan, the planner can go through what you're trying to accomplish with this estate plan, meaning where do you want your assets to go and to who and when and how, they can walk through those steps with you, but they can, unless they're an attorney, they cannot implement a financial plan, estate plan for you. Only an, a, an attorney can drop a will or a trust. There are services like Trust and Will that allow you to do it online. Those are super helpful if you have a simple situation before more complicated situations, you would need an attorney. There's also a lot of special needs families that have to be very careful about how they implement their finances and their estate plan so that they don't jeopardize these services that their dependents are, are getting. That's a whole other thing. But yes, anything having to do with your finances or life changes, transitions, school, career, children, marriage, divorce, death, taking care of your parents, things like that. All of that you can talk to your planner about. It sounds like for the people that are early in their career, like residents just transitioning to becoming an attending or early career attending physicians that are interested in getting one, it, it really pays to have an ongoing relationship rather than a one and done. Because even the because life circumstances oh, yeah. change, right? It's fluid. Typically, if you're on some sort of model where it's subscription, uh, I'm just using that as an example. Like how often do you think like an appropriate check-in? Is it quarterly? Is it twice a year? 
It's definitely not once a year, right? That's not very proactive. Once a, yeah, one, one, once a year is just maintenance. Usually, let's say these subscription plans, which I've seen popping up all over the, with planners that are looking to help people build. I like those plans a lot. In the beginning, you'll probably meet with that planner pretty often. It might be at least once a month or a couple times that first month because you're getting things after that. Depending on what you're working on, if it's a cash flow situation, you're probably going to meet with that planner once a month. After that, semi-annually would be fine or just when you're having some sort of life event. The, the time of year that I think it's super important for people to meet with their planner or advisor is usually around open enrollment because you're making a lot of benefits decisions and your planner will want you to leverage whatever benefits you have available to you as much as possible. Making those right decisions will be important. And any other time that you're having some sort of a life event or just have a question, reach out to the planner and ask. They should be able to help you. What I would say though, don't expect like a change in your financial plan each and every time you speak to them because unless it's a big life event, you want to stay on track. But if you have questions, definitely reach out to the planner. And if you're reaching out to your planner and they don't want to talk to you or they don't seem to be available as often as you'd like, then obviously maybe not the right planner for you. But minimum, if you're on maintenance once a year. Um, but what happens over time in my career, in the beginning, clients are super involved. They want to talk to you all the time. Then they don't want to talk to me. <laughs> After about the second year, unless something's going on, they're not that interested in talking to their planner as much. And it'll probably get on to a once a year cadence unless something's going on. Then definitely reach out to your planner more often. But quarterly is probably too much. Semi-annual may be too much depending on where you're at in your financial plan. But definitely reach out if something's going on. And your planner for sure should be reaching out to you at least once a year to review and see where you're at. How do you assess risk tolerance, actually? Uh, do you use a risk tolerance questionnaire or do you have your own way after you interview to see like the amount of stocks and bonds you should be? Everybody's different. What I usually do is we have the questionnaires, but the questionnaires, people don't really know what they're answering. In my days when I worked at JP Morgan or HSBC, which is it was a requirement to fill out those questionnaires, obviously you would do that. But then... From a planning perspective, if we're putting a plan together and I would take a look at how someone's invested currently and take into account what they're trying to accomplish and when, if the numbers don't work, then we're going to have a conversation as to what we can do to ensure that you do reach these goals. And sometimes that conversation has to do with your investment mix. It may mean that we have to change your allocation. And what would that change in allocation mean? The reason why I do that is because if I say a moderate portfolio or even give someone a, a percentage of how much they're allocated in bonds or stock, that doesn't mean much. You have to see what this could do in the long term for you to really understand why you're invested in this portfolio. To say that I just, I don't want to lose money or I just want to make money is not enough when it comes to picking an investment because you have to stay invested. And it may mean that you may have a different allocation for your retirement account than you do for your taxable accounts. It may mean your kid's 529 account may be invested differently. There's a bunch of ways that I 
would go about it with a client. It's not just a questionnaire at all, because I don't think those outcomes really work for people. That's one of the reasons why I like the investment policy statement, because they can be pretty detailed as to how you're invested and why. And I think I said this before, the most important thing is for you to stay invested. That's why at the end of the day, for most people, the the best thing for them to do is invest in low-cost exchange-traded funds or low-cost investments across the board. Because the way you make money over time and build wealth over time is by focusing on the decisions or the things in your financial life that you can control. Very little to do with the investments. That's just one piece. So how much you contribute, how consistent you are with contributing, how you protect yourself. All these other things are much more important than the actual investment itself. How do you handle like spouses that are not in the same financial pace? Is that something where uh, you're used to a little financial therapy rather than uh, actual financial planning? Uh, I guess they're tied. Prior to coming into NYS, I had a startup that was a financial planning startup. It was a subscription model. One thing I made sure was that even if it was a couple, that we were charging the same fee. The reason why I did that is because in my experience, I learned plenty of times that I would be working with one spouse and not the other for a bunch of reasons. Usually if there was an older couple, the wife was not as interested in the finances and felt that their husband was supposed to take care of these things. I would encourage them to bring their wives over, even if they didn't say anything, just so that they were there. Because I was a client-facing planner for over 20 years, so I had a lot of clients pass away. And it's not a good situation when the spouse doesn't know anything about their finances. I've had spouses who didn't even know how to pay their utility bills after their husband passed away. That always encouraged couples to participate in the process. And I've also had couples that participate and don't agree on anything. One of my planners at my previous company was trained in this. And this is one of the reasons why I hired him, because there is a process to go through to try to get couples to get on the same page. If it's extreme, for the most part, you will get couples that don't agree on everything, which is fine. But just finding some sort of a middle ground. Also, what I would do is just illustrate to them what the outcome would be based on either of their choices and usually let them decide after that. Because there's one thing if you say something and you want to make this financial decision, but you don't really know what the outcome of that is going to be. Usually showing them what the outcomes of these decisions will be helps because it's no longer, I'm not going to agree with you. It's more, oh, does this make sense or not? But there's certainly a big need for financial therapists. There are a lot of people who need that. And it's usually because think about the way you think about money. All of our decisions and our feelings and thoughts about money have to do with the way you experience money growing up. And if you've come from a place of lack, then you will make financial decisions. With those thoughts in mind, going forward as an adult, there are people who've gone through financial trauma whether it be through relationships and that will affect how they make their own financial decisions. Yes. <laughs> I haven't had extreme cases like that, but I usually try to illustrate to the couple what the effects would be of their decision that usually helps them make decisions and trying to figure out what is it that's going to make one person happy 
And if it doesn't make a huge difference in the financial plan, let them do it. I had a spouse once that said she wanted to spend $3,000 every Christmas. And they could certainly afford to do that. It was not going to make or break them. Tons of wasn't happy about it, but I just showed them that it doesn't matter if you spend $3,000 for Christmas. Awesome, Tanya. Thanks. Have you had clients that got fired and like retired early and but you had to do 72T and all that? Have you had clients where yeah, with the fire, you have experience uh, with that? I, I have feelings about fire. Usually, if someone is participating in the fire method, they're not working with a planner because the whole objective is to minimize expenses. They're usually doing it on their own, which makes sense if that's what you're trying to accomplish. Fire is not for everybody. And the reason why I say that is because the people that I know that have done it successfully have been able to lean on resources or family members so that they can do this. Not everybody has that situation. Not everybody has a parent or a family member that will allow them to live with them for X amount of years and not pay any bills. That way they can save money. A lot of times these are circumstances of privilege when people do it and it works. But I also noticed that everyone who's doing fire and is at the retirement stage, they're technically not retired. What they've done is put themselves in a position where they do the things that they want to do as opposed to what they have to do. And sometimes those things include making money in a different way, which I would recommend for everybody, right? That's the point to get to a point of financial flexibility and independence where you start doing the things that you want to do. That may mean working on something where you do get paid to do it, but you were not in a position to make that decision before. Past uh, eight o'clock, we might wrap up. Dr. Verma, did you want to wrap up? I didn't even see the time. Oh, yes, it's 18. We should wrap up for everyone watching this call. Thanks, everyone, for joining.